If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, for our message today entitled, What to Pack? What to Pack? For every rule, there's a story. At least that's what they say. You know, behind every rule, there's some experience or a set of events or a negative outcome that inspired this new directive. Sometimes the story is obvious, like a sign that reads, do not drive on the ice, or no smoking at the gas pump. Other times, reading the instruction manual of a consumer device that has specific instructions like, do not use television in water. (laughs) Or, do not put oatmeal in the CD drive. For every rule, there's a story. It's true of church life too. Maybe you've seen the, the list that gets handed to students or youth as they get ready for a camp or a trip. It often says at the top, what to pack. But then somewhere down on the bottom, we have to start a list, what not to pack. Because somewhere along the way, someone thought that, I don't know, fireworks would be appropriate. And the list gets started. But churches aren't the only ones. In fact, I noticed recently that even the Transportation Security Administration has begun such a list. Because those of us who go through TSA security often wonder what can go in my checked bag and and what can go in my uh, luggage on the plane. We have to figure it out. So they've made a page for you to leave no doubt. It says, what can I bring across the top? And they go on to list in alphabetical order the things you can and cannot bring both in your checked and carry-on luggage as you fly. They're in alphabetical order. It's a, it's a fun list to peruse because behind every rule, there must be a story. Uh, the A's come off simple enough, antlers, one can figure how that happens. Uh, artificial skeleton bones, I'd love to know the story. Bowling balls, acceptable, all of these. Coffee maker, acceptable. Live coral and fish, you can carry it on. Night vision goggles, fresh eggs, sand, rocks, a tortilla press. You can carry them all on. Holiday lights, vacuum robots, even your Harry Potter wand. You can carry that on. It made the TSA list of approved items. But I've saved the best for last. I pulled it out of alphabetical order. It says it right there on your government website, lightsabers are allowed in your carry-on luggage. And in the short description they give, not all items got a short description, but this one did. It says, sadly, the technology doesn't currently exist to create a real lightsaber. However, you can pack a toy lightsaber in your carry-on or checked bag. May the force be with you. (laughs) I don't think I want the force with anyone flying with me, but you can carry that on too. Is here in Luke's gospel, chapter nine comes around and for the first time, Jesus finally calls his disciples to do something. They've been with him for some time now. Up until now, they've primarily been observers and hearers. He has taught 
a hundred crowds in their hearing, embedded in their minds this message and methods day after day, week after week, month after month, until they know them by heart. Now it's time to send them out, to learn how to minister, to give them detailed instructions, including in this passage, what to pack. Or maybe we should say, what not to pack. You see, Jesus does more than suggest that they travel lightly in our text today. They were commanded to take nothing for their journey, nothing. And as we read that passage today in a world full of overpacking and extra baggage fees and just in case kind of people, what sense does that really make? I mean, how are we supposed to take these words, these specific instructions in their unique time and place given to Jesus' disciples as they're sent out? What message might they give us today? You see, we can neither mimic these exact circumstances or the social setting in which Jesus gives them, but neither can we read a passage like this and simply dismiss it as if it has no value for us as we discern what it means to be a disciple today. I think we can learn some things about what it means to be Jesus' disciples now from instructions like these. You see, the gospels tell us that the disciples have been called for two reasons. Mark says Jesus called them so that they could be with him and so that they could be sent out from him. The two always go hand in hand in the scriptures, that we are called to be with Jesus, that we might be sent out by Jesus. Our worship may fuel our mission, but if it stays there, we've missed the meaning of Jesus's message. Gathering together is always so that we might be scattered to the ends of the earth. The disciples have been with him and now they will be sent from him. Sort of like a, a student driver who's finally being put behind the wheel. Maybe you've had that blessed experience of teaching someone else how to drive. There's only so much you can do by observation. You can make a permitted student sit in the passenger seat for some time and watch as you navigate the city streets using your turn signal, putting on your seat belt, hopefully not in that order. <laughs> but at some point, you have to let them get behind the wheel. See, Jesus has begun to share his life. And even more so, he's begun to share his his methods with his closest followers. He knew that his time with them was short and he'll explain that soon to them even though they won't understand, but already he is starting now to share his vocation, his job, his mission with them. It's time they learn how to drive. And so the sending begins. It's the first of, of four commissioning or sending scenes in the Gospel of Luke. Here, the, the 12 are sent to preach and to heal and to cast out demons. In chapter 10, he'll send out 70 in pairs. In chapter 22, the, the apostles are sent out for their post-Easter missions. And then in chapter 24, the, there's the commissioning of the 11 and the others at the end of the gospel. We're told in Luke 9, chapter 1 today, that Jesus calls aside those same 12 that he had beckoned to come and commanded, summoned to come and follow him. That he summons them again and calls them into service. He tells them quite specifically, take nothing for the journey. Now the rationale and the 
Social context of these restrictions has been interpreted in various ways. There are some suggestions as to why he may have made this specific list, a staff, a bag, bread, money, two tunics, all denied. Now, if you go on a mission trip here at First Baptist Church, we do expect you to take more than one set of clothing. So we don't seek to grab these instructions, to bring them today and say, this must be how Christian life has to be now. But we ought to look carefully at what Jesus is suggesting when he says, don't take a staff, perhaps a means of protection with you. Don't take a, a bag, often interpreted as a, a beggar's bag that they might have held open on the city streets to collect money as they go. Don't take a bread for the journey or money or even an extra change of clothes. We don't know how long this campaign lasted. It would seem like it lasted at least several weeks. And that would normally require any number of provisions. And yet Jesus forbids the disciples to take extra supplies. He insisted they not take along what is fair to call necessities that any one of us would expect to take on a trip like this. You see, by traveling this way, the disciples would embody the urgency of their mission. See, with a lightened load and an unencumbered journey, the disciples would be less tempted to, to make a habit of moving slow or getting too comfortable along the way. They'd be free to move as God led them to share and to serve however they saw fit, when and where necessary. And even more than that, the disciples, we're told, have the, the power to heal the sick and to preach the kingdom of God. Both their preaching and their healing are this distinctive part of their mission, held together, inseparable. Because their ministry, along with Jesus, was a sign that God's kingdom was finally and freely breaking into the present world in ways they had never before seen. That's why it's so urgent. See, the message they were sent out to herald was not just any message, the gospel, the good news that they were sent to proclaim was the good news that God's new world was breaking into this present moment. The message was too urgent, too vital, too important to be encumbered and weighed down, to be carrying baggage or stuck at any given spot along the way. These things can't come along and they'll rely on local hospitality focused entirely on the task at hand because this is the news of God's kingdom coming. They were kingdom heralds, riders sent out to, to warn people that something was about to happen and that everybody better get ready for it. There was no time to waste. And yet not everyone would listen. Jesus knew that. The disciples learned that. Not everywhere that they went, they would be accepted. The text suggests that some places whole villages might accept them and other places whole villages might reject them. That's why he gives them instructions and what to do in that scenario too. That not out of spite or anger, but out of a symbolic witness, they were to brush the dust off of their feet and move on. Not because they dismiss those who reject Jesus, but because God's new life is too important, too vital to stand still. It has to move on to find new hearers, to give others the chance to hear the news. And in their present moment, in the days that lie ahead, they proclaimed God's life is now available in Jesus, the Messiah who has called and sent us out. 
See, the life-saving significance of the disciples' message was to shape even the method of their travel. Their lives, the, the very way they went about their business was to witness to the urgency, to the significance, to the power of the Messiah who had sent them. And so they went, taking nothing with them. Off the coast of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, sits Nantucket Island. And there is home to the Egan Maritime Institute, which houses the Shipwreck and Life Saving Museum. It's a little museum that sits on Nantucket Island, uh, dedicated to a, a volunteer organization formed centuries ago. John Ortberg tells the story of travel in those days by sea being extremely dangerous in that region. See, in the 1800s, hundreds of ships would pass by Nantucket Island, a, a rocky coastline that became known as a graveyard of the Atlantic. Some 750 shipwrecks were recorded in that one region. Sailors in those days in the 1800s traveled with very little weather predictions and even less technology. And so getting yourself in a bind was, was fairly frequent. Strong currents and, and rocky coasts and dense fog often caught the most experienced sailors off guard. Inclement weather led to hundreds of shipwrecks and many lives would be lost, some of them just a mere mile off of the coast as ships traveled up and down the Massachusetts coastline. So a group of volunteers went into the life-saving business. They banded together to form what was called the Humane Society. These people started to build little huts all along the shore, up and down the coast, and they would have people watching, looking out over the sea all the time. And whenever a, a ship went down, the word would go out, and they would devote everything to call people to come and to save every life that they could. They invented new rigging and lines and, and little boats that could go and, and, shave, and save capsized ships. They didn't put themselves at risk for, for money or for recognition, but only because they prized and valued human life. To remind them exactly what was at stake, they adopted a motto. They used to say, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. It doesn't sound like a very re catchy recruiting slogan to get new volunteers, but it was. And it's fascinating, you can go and you can read the accounts of people who would risk everything, even their lives, to save people that they had never met. And then over time, things changed. The situation became a little bit more serious. They began to lobby the government to give them more support. And after a while, this took the shape of something closer to the US Coast Guard. For a while, the Coast Guard and this life-saving society kind of operated side by side. Eventually though, the idea that, that carried the day that, that one was that we ought to pay these professionals, get them trained as, as best as possible, and then just let the professionals do it. And so over time, things changed. Volunteers stopped 
manning those little huts that they had built up and down the coast. They stopped searching the coastlines for ships that were in danger. They stopped sending teams out to rescue drowning people. And yet a strange thing has happened. They, they didn't disband. That little society still exists today. The members meet every once in a while to have dinners. They hand out awards for things like community service in their area. They sponsor well-meaning programs. They get together, they enjoy one another's company. They're just, they're just not in the life-saving business anymore. You see, if we lose the urgency of the message, we've missed out on the mission of our Messiah. They don't scour the coastline anymore with volunteers up in Massachusetts to see if anybody's going down. They don't, they don't know the thrill anymore of what it was to risk themselves, to save a life that could perish. They don't speak words to each other anymore like you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. They're just not in the life-saving business anymore. But you and I, called and equipped by Jesus, are very much in the life-saving business, friends. We don't always see it because we can be blinded by our self-preoccupation, the worries and fears that we carry with us, the baggage of our own lives or the schedules that crowded out, but we are in an urgent task given to us by the Lord himself. And I ask this morning, along with Jesus, what might get in your way? Whatever it is, leave it behind. You see, our lives should be shaped by the urgency of the message. And caring so little, not only would the disciples' lives be shaped by the urgency of their task, the, the second thing we learn is that they will declare their complete dependence on God's provision. The disciples would be formed for dependency. They'd be trained to, to trust him as they set out on these unknown circumstances into regions where they don't know how they'll be received. The, the lightness of their load proves that they'll have to depend on Jesus at every step of the way. Jesus even warns them, whenever you go into a village and, and go into a home, stay there. Because they, he knew they would be tempted to jump from one patron to the next, to couch surf from one couch to a queen bed, to go from a queen bed to king living. They might be interested or, or tempted to trade up, to get more comfortable and to stay a while, but Jesus says, you have to depend on me every step of the way. Now it's true, of course, you and I live in different circumstances. It's also true that perhaps hospitality to the stranger played a significant role in the ancient Middle East that no longer exists in our culture. It may have been more likely that the disciples' needs would be met regardless of what they carried because of those circumstances. It's also true that the first followers of Jesus didn't own nearly as much as we do and didn't overpack their suitcases for a, a weekend trip. But Jesus tells them that every step of the way, God will provide. And they need to learn to depend only on him. A friend of mine, a couple years ago, set out on a biking tour across America. Now on his own, my friend Trent decided that he was going to 
bike the 6,792 miles from San Francisco, California to Boston, Massachusetts. He set out in January of 2020. And the world would change, but his plans at the time were steady. He wrote as he went along the way, recording his experience. And he wrote one time that if you asked me what I was afraid of when I started my tour, I would have told you that I was afraid of spending too much money on lodging. But if you looked at what was in my bags, you would find a different story. I packed too many clothes because I was afraid to be cold. I packed a collared shirt because I was afraid what people would think of my appearance if I wore the same thing every day. I brought too much sunscreen and medicines because I was afraid of sunburn and sickness, but actually these things are accessible all along the way. I was really just filling my bags with my fears, as we tend to do when we have excess space. Every morning, he says, as I get up and pack for the miles that lay ahead, it's been a struggle just to get the zippers closed. And so it is with us. We fill our bags with things that we don't need or afraid we might need while Jesus calls us to leave it all behind. And I'm asking today, what are you taking with you as you trust your life to Jesus? What are you packing extra in your call to discipleship? What have you placed beside Jesus and suggested that our lives might be handed over to Jesus and when he calls us to live with Jesus only? You see, we fill our space with so many things we think we might need, our, our fears, our worries, the unknown and the unexpected and cramming extras into the zipper in case God's plan doesn't quite pan out. But you can't say yes to Jesus and keep on saying yes to the things of this world. The two, our Lord says, cannot coexist. We have to believe with Paul in Philippians 4:19 that my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You see, the disciples like us don't quite know Jesus fully yet. I would argue that all of us can spend a lifetime and never quite understand or know Jesus fully. But Jesus calls them to go out in service to him, carrying less with them so that along the way they might depend on him. And in their dependence and in their trust and in their vulnerability, they come to know who Jesus is even more. You see, some days later, the disciples had come back from this little excursion and they pulled aside with Jesus and a whole crowd of folks just a couple verses later followed them. A story you've heard before, Jesus and thousands of people are gathered and he pulls his disciples aside and he says, you give them something to eat. The disciples look one to the other and well, you told us to bring nothing. They have no food to feed anybody. They tell Jesus, we really need to send them away so they can get food, so they can go find their own nourishment. After all, you told us not to pack and plan and prepare, even though we really wanted to. It was in that moment of uncertainty, vulnerability and lack that Jesus takes what little they have to offer, a few loaves and a few fish. And he blesses them. He gives thanks, he breaks bread. 
And as they begin to pass those around to the thousands, they realize that one after another, there just seems to be enough until ultimately and finally at the end, they collect the extras and there's 12 baskets full of leftovers, more than they even began with. And I'm telling you that if even one of them had decided to plan and prepare on their own, not to rely on Jesus, they would have missed the miracle. They would have never known the Messiah who can feed the thousands, who can bring bread out of nothing, who can make more in abundance when it's all said and done than we had in the beginning to begin with. Today, Jesus sends out those who have been with him, telling them, take nothing for the journey. But why? Why would Jesus want us to empty our hands and follow him? Because those who are sent And those who receive are better prepared to receive the gifts of God when their hands aren't so full. And what will happen, you may ask, if I really was to leave this place with the kind of urgency Jesus calls for, formed in dependency on him? And I'm here to tell you, you would discover that Jesus is always enough. And if you go with everything that you need, if you make your own plans or build your own kingdoms and sit idly by, you will never know him like he asks. And for every rule, there is a story behind it, isn't there? For every rule, there's a story. See, there was a day when All was lost and without hope. It seemed like humankind would would never get their act together. You and I were dead in our sins and trespasses. And the scriptures tell us that it was then when the moment was just right in the fullness of time that God decided to take his own journey. You see, unable to overlook his own justice and unwilling to leave us in our despair, Jesus, we're told, emptied himself. He took a journey from the heavens where he held all power and all might and all majesty that there ever was and ever will be in his hands and he let them go and he came to earth taking nothing with him for the journey. He became as one of us. And with all righteousness on full display, the scriptures tell us that Jesus stood before men and said, he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He came with urgency to announce the kingdom coming. He came in dependency, being obedient to the Father even unto death. And as he lived his righteous, sinless life, this world decided instead to crush him and they led him to a hill called Calvary. And it was there that the hands that could hold all the waters of the earth in in the hollow of his hand were instead nailed to an old rugged cross. And when they took him down, they they led him and, and buried him in a borrowed tomb. And I'm telling you that the rule is that dead men stay dead. But our story, is that early on Sunday morning, they opened the tomb and it was empty. That Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, then he can be with us now and give us his life even now. And if that is true, there is nothing more that you need in this life on the journey. The rule is that you can't take much with you. But the story behind it is that Jesus is always enough. 
The rule is that dead men stay dead. But the story is that our king is a resurrected one. The rule is you have to leave it all behind. But the story is that after appearing to his disciples, Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And he ascended into heaven where he sits reigning and ruling with the Father above, sitting, the scriptures tell us, a little higher than the angels, having all things in his hands once again. If you let it all go, the story says, you will inherit far greater in return. The rule is you have to go out. But the story is that Jesus will always lead you home. The rule is you have to go out. But our story is that we're still in the life-saving business. What could possibly slow you down? What might you leave behind? The rule is you can't take much with you. But our story is that Jesus is always enough. Let's pray. Father, we come with hands full and bags packed, schedules completed and plans made, and we lay them at your feet. We say, God, we desire to trust and obey, to go where you might lead, to let your story change our lives. And so we ask God that shaped by the urgency of the task informed by a dependency on you, you might send us out because surely in this place and together with these people, we have been with you. We thank you, Jesus, and pray this in Jesus' name, amen.